0: Our speaker this evening is New York Times best-selling author, Mark Kurlansky. Mr. Kurlansky earned a bachelor's degree in theater at Butler University in 1970, and subsequently worked in New York as a playwright, where he wrote several off-off-Broadway productions, and served as playwright in residence at Brooklyn College. In the mid-1970s, Mr. Kurlansky left theater for journalism, and he worked as a foreign correspondent from 1976 to 1991 for the International Herald Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. He has had articles published in numerous newspapers and magazines ranging from the Los Angeles Times to Bon Appetit. Mr. Kirlansky has had 29 books published, which have received an impressive number of awards and accolades. His book, COD, received the 1999 James Beard Award for food writing and the 1999 Glenn Fittich Award. His publication, The Basque History of the World, earned Mr. Kolansky induction into the Basque Hall of Fame and an honorary ambassadorship from the Basque government in 2001. He earned Bon Appetit's Food Writer of the Year in 2006 the 2007 Dayton Literary Peace Prize for his book, Nonviolence, and a 2011 National Parenting Publications Gold Award for World Without Fish. Mr. Kirlanski has guest lectured all over the world on history, writing, environmental issues, and other subjects. His books have been translated into 25 different languages, and he often illustrates them himself. Tonight, Mr. Kurlansky will discuss his new book, Paging, Paper Through History, which challenges common assumptions about technology's influence and affirms that paper is, in fact, here to stay. Please join me in welcoming Mark Kurlansky to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. You know... <clears throat> People keep offering me commodities. You know, the, the most common is they say you should write a book about pepper. You know, because I wrote a book about salt, and you know, <clears throat> you ever think of the history of lettuce? <laughs> How about cat litter? Um, <clears throat> it just seems the more obscure, uh, the better. They people think that I try to be odd and obscure. Um, when I was uh, when I was working on my 1968 book, I interviewed Walter Cronkite, who lived across town from me in Manhattan. And uh, I went there and I knocked on the door and he answered the door himself. And I was standing there. I realized here's this man who has been giving me the news of you know my entire youth, uh, with this very distinct. Uh, and familiar voice, he said, Why, I know you. You're the leading expander of minutia. <laughs> 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 um, but I, I'm, th- it's not really what I'm trying to do. Um, and, uh, actually, only about four or five out of my 29 books have been uh about commodities. And what I look for is a, is a good story uh, and a history that tells us something about who we are and how we got here. Um, And uh, paper is that. Uh, A guy named Kermit Hummel came up to me, you know, like a lot of other people suggesting something I should write about. Kermit was the, uh, uh, he ran a, A small imprint in Vermont that was owned by Norton, and he said, you should write a book about paper. And a very interesting guy. We had some long conversations about it. He gave me some books. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought I should write a book about paper. Um, And one of my original ideas or thoughts about a book about paper is that it was a subject that had a beginning and an end, which is actually rare in history. History doesn't have beginnings and ends. It has, it just flows. And so, you know, one of the struggles is always trying to figure out where to begin. Um, the paper had a beginning, a guy named uh, Kai Lun, who uh, was in the Han court, first century AD in China. And as uh, famous as the inventor of paper, all school kids in China learn this, and his picture is, is everywhere because, you know, the Chinese particularly pride themselves in four inventions, um, uh, paper and printing and gunpowder and the compass. And of those four, paper is the only one that has an inventor, a specific person problem is um, a bunch of uh, archeologists went to China and they found pieces of paper that were one in 200 years before Kai Lun was born, so, um, <coughs> so much for the beginning. Also, I thought there was an end and there isn't. I mean, paper is not going to disappear. I, like a lot of people, thought that we are at the end of paper and I've learned that this is not at all true, that paper is not going to disappear in our lifetime or in in the foreseeable future, um, because we need it and use it for a lot of things. Um, Working on this book, uh, I learned a lot of things, maybe more than any other book I ever did, and it completely changed my understanding of Technology and the role of technology in history. Uh, Technology, in fact, rarely eliminates older technology, Uh, it creates alternatives. Um, Some of you might remember when television was supposed to uh, end radio. Uh, You know, vinyl record sales are going up and up every year. Um, the British, the British Parliament is having this interesting debate Um, apparently following a very old European belief that if something is really supposed to be enduring and important it should be written on parchment and not printed on paper Um, surprisingly it turns out that all British laws are written on parchment and somebody stood up in Parliament recently and said you know we could save a lot of money if we just printed them on paper.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> um, and old technologies, you know, like vinyl records, even when you think they're going to go away, they have a way of resurfacing. I mean, if you think about how alphabets were created to replace hieroglyphics and pictographs, and, you know, what is an emoji? <laughs> Uh, For some reason that I don't exactly understand, we're using more and more pictographs and hieroglyphics than we ever did before. Um, And I've I've come to understand something that I've labeled the technological fallacy. The technological fallacy is the idea that technology changes society. If you look at it, and studying the history of paper really showed this to me, uh, society changes for a variety of political, economic, social reasons, and when it is changing, it calls up technology to facilitate those changes. It's not not the other way around. Um, An example of this is China, 250 BC, Meng Chen invented a camel hair brush They had been using a wooden stylus uh, for this incredible Chinese language of characters, uh, for the art of calligraphy, um, for watercolors, for all these things, for all of their many written texts. And now they could use this brush, which worked much better. But it's not like calligraphy and writing and all of these things It really started happening because somebody invented the brush. Somebody invented the brush because these things were happening. You see this over and over again. Martin Heidegger, in this famous essay, The Question Concerning Technology, wrote, Technology is a means to an end. First there's the end, the goal, and then the means, the technology, is is found. Technology is a way of revealing, he wrote. Um, if you look at the Luddites, I don't mean your neighbors who refuse to use a computer, <laughs> but the original Luddites who were uh, weavers in uh, the British Midlands in the early 19th century. Um, strangely, nobody knows why they were called Luddites. But, um, a Frenchman uh, in the 1790s, a man named Jacques Invented a loom. I mean, think about this. 1790s, he invented a loom that was programmable with punch cards. Um, He did this to uh, destroy the rights and privileges of weavers, who were highly skilled workers who, uh, you know, could demand good wages and lots of benefits. The weavers responded by smashing the looms, and the British Army responded by attacking them and uh, smashing a loom became a capital crime and eventually they were able to crush the Luddites and the Luddite movement ended. Um, Some years later not a lot of years Karl Marx in his definitive work Das Kapital wrote about the Luddites. He said the reason the Luddites failed was that they attacked the technology they should have attacked the society. So remember that. <laughs> um, so I, I saw this looking at, at paper, uh, first invented in China. In fact, the Chinese were the only ones to invent papermaking. Everybody else uh, learned it because it was around. Um, and it's not really known when they invented it or how anybody had this incredible idea. The paper is um, cellulose fibers. You take something, cellulose is a sugar compound, uh, one of the most uh, um, common uh, organic substances in, it's in most plants. You pound them down to the fibers. You can do this with with cotton, with silk, with straw, with grass, with uh, bamboo, uh, wood, uh, many different things. But you take uh, something with cellulose and you pound it down so there's nothing left but the fibers. You mix the fiber with water, uh, about 2% fiber and 98% water. You know, when you look at the solution, you don't even see that anything's in it, it looks just like water. You pour it on a screen, the water passes through and a layer forms. I'm making this sound a lot easier than it actually is. Uh, and you peel it off, and it's a leaf that you can write on. Um, incredible. I don't know what made somebody think of it. Um, uh, <clears throat> but they did in China, and the, and the reason they did was because they needed it. Uh, China was developing a society, a very bureaucratic society, and you know bureaucracies love to write things and create documents. And... Um, and they had a lot of philosophy and they wanted to preserve uh, old thinkers like Confucius and, and they had art and poetry and um, uh, just many uses uh, for the written word and stone and tortoiseshells and bones and uh, bamboo and silk in that order. Um, could only go so far, they needed something better. And that's why they developed paper. <laughs> and then they uh, they spread their culture to Korea. Not that they told taught them to make paper, they just taught them their culture, and soon they had a culture, including the Chinese language, uh, that needed paper, so they made paper also. And uh, Buddhists from Korea took it to Japan, uh, same process uh, again, and they had this Chinese culture and Chinese language and uh, Chinese writing, and they needed paper, so they, they started making it. And for uh, quite a few centuries, paper was a uniquely Asian thing because they were the only ones who needed it. And, um, and then the Arabs started developing a very uh, literate society, um, with uh, mathematics and science and books about all these things and books of literature and poetry and they even did cookbooks and um, they had contact with the chinese through samarkand and uh, they learned how to make paper because it was exactly what they needed and they had this huge empire from uh, You know, the the eastern steppes all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, from the Pyrenees to the Sahara, huge area. Paper mills everywhere. Um, Used a lot of paper for books. Um, Spain, when it was uh, Muslim, was a huge paper center. Um, So Europeans knew about paper, especially since the Arabs were always trying to sell it to them. They didn't want it. They saw no no use whatsoever for paper. And you know, some historians have even speculated that, that, you know, they were partly motivated by anti-Semitism, in the broad sense of the word, because uh, there are all of these uh, accounts by uh, Christian monks, Europeans, who, um, and it wasn't Christianity, because in the Arab world there were Christians who used paper, it was Europeans. You know, and they, they would write these things about, uh, you know, these, these Muslims and Jews are so disgusting the way they, they write. You know, the, the paper was made from rags. So they write on this stuff made from old clothes. It's what disgusting people. Um, their laws were oral. They didn't write them. Uh, very few people uh, knew how to read or write. Uh, the few that did were in monasteries. They had books, uh, very large books made out of parchment, which is animal skin, Uh, uh, very beautiful. Uh, Some aristocrats had these books also, but in most cases couldn't read them, but just kept them as uh, works of art. Uh, And and that was the the extent of, you know, after a while the, the Vatican decided they wanted to have a library and they got up to a few hundred books. The Arab world had libraries that were hundreds of thousands of books, um, but in time, uh, Europeans uh, became much more literate. Uh, commerce, business became more sophisticated. You know, originally they didn't write any bills; they didn't write down any business transactions, and they started doing that. They started learning uh, Arab mathematics. Um, they they started. Uh, learning about science, and pretty soon they needed another writing material than parchment because it took—I don't know—I mean, hundreds of animals to make a book. I'm not really sure. There are accounts, the incredible accounts, five hundred animals to make a book. It may, that may be an exaggeration, but um, quite a lot. I know I, I checked because uh, the—you the, know—the Jewish Torah. Is still done on parchment. And I checked with a Torah maker in Israel, and he told me that uh, he has to kill about 60 calves to make one Torah. So this was not a very practical writing material. Uh, and so eventually, uh, the Europeans started adopting paper, too. Uh, so these civilizations weren't created by paper, which, you know, somebody in a very astute review of this book said that, well, you know, Kurlansky is undermining his own book because, you know, I, I refuse to say that paper created all these things. Uh, these civilizations came about, and they embraced paper because it gave them the means they needed to do what they wanted to do. Um, first, in Italy, in the mid 1200s. Uh, <clears throat> Papermaking didn't get north of the Alps until Nuremberg in 1390. Uh, And a lot of things changed. Art changed tremendously uh, because you could do art on paper. Uh, So for the first time in history, uh, there was art that was affordable. Uh, Art was something for uh, nobility and for the church, and nobody else could buy paintings or sculptures, or, um, <clears throat> but then there was uh, art on paper. People like Al- Aldrich Durer, who was the master of woodcuts. There were also lesser artists who did woodcuts. and um, uh, Durer could take these to uh, a, a town fair and common people could buy uh, woodcut prints, uh, drawings in the Renaissance. For the first time, drawing became an art form. Um, Leonardo da Vinci, when he died, had left behind only 15 paintings, and not all of them were finished, but he left behind 4,000 drawings. Um, So what happened there was that the the nature of society was changing, it was becoming more democratic, more open to uh, other classes, Um, and so they wanted, art uh, that people could buy, and paper was the perfect solution. Um, books, when they were, they were parchment, uh, were huge, and they were kept on something about this size, uh, you know, which, which tells you that people weren't reading them a lot. <laughs> uh, Petrarch, the 14th century poet, uh, liked to read a lot and move around and, and these huge books. And he dropped one uh, and so injured his leg that it almost had to be amputated. And then he started asking for smaller books. <laughs> and, and, and there again, people didn't start reading more and reading more casually because books were smaller. Books became smaller because uh, people wanted to read that way and more people wanted to read. Uh, The printing press uh, was actually invented in Asia, one of the four great Chinese inventions. Uh, Why did they invent a printing press? Because of Buddhism. You know, Jews, if a Jew is devout, uh, he reads and rereads over and over again the same book. If a Muslim is devout, he's supposed to memorize word for word the entire Quran. If a Buddhist is devout, he's supposed to make copies of the sutras, books of sermons of the Buddha. Uh, You you copy a sutra and it's a a blessing. Uh, So, wow, think how many blessings you can get if you have a printing machine. (laughs) Uh, But Europeans didn't uh, print until many centuries later. And what stimulated printing in Europe, was the Protestant Reformation. Uh, <coughs> remember Martin Luther uh, sticking these tracks on church doors and on palaces, uh, he needed lots of copies, and uh, also pamphlets and, and brochures, and they could, they could not hand copy enough of these things uh, to have the size movement they were trying to have. And so it's not coincidence that At the time of the Protestant Reformation in Germany, uh, the printing press was invented by Gutenberg. Um, Not really invented, reinvented, um, and movable type, uh, which Gutenberg was able to carve because he was actually a goldsmith by trade. Um, But it's, It it never unfolded all that neatly, you know, like Hegel, the German philosopher, said, reason is the law of the world, and therefore in world history, things have come about rationally. What a nice thought. (laughs) Not really. Uh, For example, Holland, England, and America are all examples of countries that learned how to print many, many years before they learned how to make paper. Because making paper is actually much harder than printing. And you can get a printing press and put it in your house and, and print things. But uh, you know, a paper mill, uh, they were water powered so you needed to be by a fast running river and it had to be the right quality of water. If the water had too much iron in it, the paper would be a funny color. And um, it was just much more complicated. So, you know, What happened over and over again is people started printing and, you know, where's the paper? It was a a panic to get paper. Um, The pilgrims in 1620, the Mayflower, came here uh, with no paper, no paper maker, no printer, no printing press. Why would that be surprising? They also had no farmers, no farm tools, no fishermen, no fishing tackle. Uh, just, no wonder they nearly starved. Um, it's like they didn't really think this thing out. <coughs> um, in 1638, a wealthy Puritan decided to move here and take a printing press. And he also took two printing apprentices, uh, He died uh, during the crossing of smallpox, but the apprentices took the press and they set up. The first printing press made the first uh, book in America, which was an almanac for the year 1639, which has disappeared. No copies of it exist. So the second book they did, the the Bay Psalm book, famous as the first book in America, was actually the second book in America. But we have copies. We got about 11 copies of this. and we like to call it the first book in America because, uh, for example, in 2013 at Sotheby's, one sold for $14 million. Check your book stacks, you know. Um, In 1660, uh, the first Bible was printed in America. Uh, considering this was a religious movement, that's quite extraordinary that it took that long. And it was printed in Algonquin, which is even more extraordinary because Algonquins didn't read and write. (laughs) So the Puritans invented a written Algonquin language, which they then attempted to teach Algonquins their language. Um, the, The second Bible printed in America... It wasn't printed until a century later, but it was in English. Um, Massachusetts didn't get its first paper mill until 1728 in the Neponset River, uh, financed by the family of uh, John Hancock. Um, The paper industry in, in America largely grew in the 18th century in Pennsylvania, Uh, with a tremendous amount of backing from uh, Benjamin Franklin, whose parents, I'm told, are out there somewhere. (laughs) I'm told that. (laughs) Um, uh, Franklin uh, started at least 18 paper mills, uh, numerous printing presses and a few newspapers. He was, in fact, the first American press baron, very... This is what made Franklin a very important person. Um, In 1764, remember the Stamp Act that everybody was upset about? It was uh, a tax on paper, on printed paper, anything printed. uh, Accounting, newspapers, uh, playing cards. uh, First playing cards in America, by the way, were uh, made in Milton. And not only did this turn a lot of colonists against the British, it made the American press, American newspapers, really hate the British. uh, Because it was destroying the whole economy of newspapers, which is always built on trying to do things cheaply. Uh, And they started a movement to boycott British paper and try to do their, their newspapers entirely on American paper, which there wasn't enough of around um the American Revolution like the Protestant Reformation was built on paper uh, pamphlets broadsides uh, books newspapers uh, all political movements after the Reformation uh, were the during the French Revolution the number of books printed in France doubled. Uh, uh, 1848, 1968, all social movements were paper until the invention of uh, social media. Um, But in the American Revolution, there was another need for paper, and that's because they they were using these black powder muskets, and you had to confine the the powder against the ball so that when it exploded, it would propel the ball. So they needed paper to fire muskets. Uh, and there just wasn't, I mean, there wasn't enough paper for newspapers, let alone for muskets. So the Continental Army went around raiding. They raided one of Franklin's printing presses and found a copy of a, it was a sermon called uh, Defensive War. Uh, and the minister who had commissioned this uh, printing of this sermon had never paid up. And so Franklin never delivered the sermons. Uh, so they were all torn up and shot at the British. Um, <laughs> Um, also fired at the British were 3,000 copies of a uh, uh, German-language Bible, uh, you know, it was wh- whatever they could get. Uh, there was a general movement to boycott British goods. Uh, John Adams, like Mohandas Gandhi uh, many years later, um, suggested that uh, everybody should wear homespun cloth and not buy British cloth. Uh, for their clothes, and there, there was this general movement, don't buy British, and especially don't buy English paper, okay? So then they did the Declaration of Independence, and that old mentality, again, this is something important and that should be lasting, they did it on parchment. They did four handwritten copies on parchment, uh, but they wanted everybody to see this Declaration of Independence. They wanted it to be read at every garrison of the Continental Congress, taken to every town. Couldn't get out enough parchment copies to do that, so they also printed on paper the, in a broadside. Uh, the paper was uh, uh, English. It was, yeah, the Declaration of Independence was not an English paper. <laughs> it's, it's actually a Dutch paper that the Dutch made specifically for the British. To, uh, export to their colonies. And, uh, to appeal to the British market, the Dutch did a watermark of the, of the British royal seal. So the American revolutionaries, they're, they're doing all this stuff. The Federalist Papers, um, you know, Hamilton and those four guys, uh, um, writing about, uh, why we should ratify the Constitution, uh, on paper. British paper with a British royal seal. <laughs> um, finally, in the, uh, in, in the early 19th century, Americans started getting you know just kind of irritated about this. The U.S. senators, you know, their stationery uh, had British royal seals on it. Many people were saying, "What is this?" <laughs> and so the uh, young American government started started subsidizing uh, paper making, so there would be enough paper so that they could stop using British paper. Um, there was a, a, a guy, at the same time that Jacquard was doing his programmable loom to destroy um, the privileges of weavers, uh, another Frenchman, uh, Robert, invented a machine to make paper. And the importance of this machine was that it, it was a continuous roll of paper rather than doing individual sheets. When you, normally when you did paper, you had this uh, screen that was in a frame, and you, you, you poured this stuff on it, and you shook it a little like this, and you made the paper. This was a machine that uh, uh, was in a roll, and so the screen, rather than being something like this, was a conveyor belt. And it actually did shake a little from side to side and it formed a continuous uh, roll of paper. <clears throat> it, it actually employed the two uh, really important uh, um, machines of, of the Industrial Revolution. It was steam-powered instead of being water-powered and a conveyor belts. Um, and uh, <clears throat> he did this. Uh, to destroy the privileges of the highly skilled papermakers, uh, who in France had a tremendous amount of privileges. They were called modes, and all sorts of things, like they had to be given uh, pig ears to eat on Mardi Gras, and donuts for Palm Sunday, and uh, you know, they really could dictate their terms until this, uh, this machine came along. Um, so now they had machine-made paper, um, and printing was getting better. Uh, and the only limitation was rags, because paper was made from rags. And uh, they really couldn't get enough rags. The, the, the demand for paper started getting to the point where you just couldn't get enough rags. I mean, there was always this idea that paper mills uh, should be near cities, because that's where the rags were. Uh, but, you know, nobody wanted to be around paper mills because they... They used uh, urine to decompose the fibers, and they smelled terrible, and they had these you know, hammers that were smashing the, the, the textiles to break them down uh, 24-7, so it was noisy. Um, and they wanted to be out in the woods somewhere, but they had to be near rags. So the US actually imported rags. Um, during the revolution, You know, this idea went out that it was everybody's patriotic duty to save rags. And in America, that idea continued for a long time. Civic-minded people saved rags. Uh, But, you know, they they couldn't get enough. Um, uh, Not that rags were getting scarcer, but, you know, they wanted to make more and more paper. So, you know, this book... Uh, if, if you look at it, it's, it's beautiful paper. I mean, we talked about how you're going to do a book about paper. You've got to print it on beautiful paper, right? Uh, <clears throat> it is paper that's made by a mill in Pennsylvania called Gladfelter, uh, which started in 1863, and uh, they had gotten the mill. They bought the mill at a bargain price at going out of business sale. The previous owners of the mill had been caught, 1863, Pennsylvania, they had been caught on the Gettysburg battlefield stripping the bandages and uniforms from dead soldiers to make paper. Um, And I think you can understand why nobody wanted that paper, you know, but um, they weren't the first ones to do that in the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. Commonly, uh, papermakers would go to the battlefields to strip the dead, um, and it is said, this is less provable, but it is said that Egyptian paper makers used to break into tombs and take the shrouds from mummies to make paper. Um, everybody was desperate for, for rags and needed something else. And what, what was settled on was wood. Um, the first wood mill in America was also 1863. Um, but, you know, this is an example of how um, technology becomes more accessible, uh, less expensive, and lower quality. Um, because that rag paper they used to make was great paper. You can look at old, you know, look at 18th century books. I mean, look at Renaissance books. Look, uh, look at books from the 1500s. And... Um, the pages are white, there's no foxing, spotting, no discoloring at all, they're perfectly flat. It was great paper. If you want great paper, you'll go to a quality stationer and you'll get what's called 100% rag paper, which is what all paper used to be. <clears throat> but wood, uh, wood-based paper uh, was made paper available uh, uh, so that you could make more and more paper Uh, there was an issue of how much longer there were going to be forests at this rate. Uh, Stripping virgin forests to make paper, uh, not a good idea. Uh, And there was a huge battle over that. And people don't seem to realize but that battle is largely over. Uh, They don't make paper that way anymore. Paper is made from uh, trees that are farmed for the purpose of... uh, Uh, making paper which is completely sustainable so you know when you get this thing that says uh, take your bill electronically save a tree you're not saving a tree you're saving that company a stamp Um, there's there's still a lot of uh, handmade paper uh, in the world Uh, The Japanese, in particular, make incredibly great paper uh, from the barks of certain trees, very long fibers. So the paper is quite thin and lightweight, but extremely strong. So during World War II, the Japanese military had this idea. um, While the American military was planning to drop nuclear bombs on them, the Japanese idea was to make balloons out of handmade paper and put conventional bombs in them and send them out across the Pacific. Um, They made 9,000 balloons with handmade Japanese paper and bombs uh, and sent them out in the Pacific to uh, drop on the U.S. Uh, 1,000 of them made it to the U.S., Occasionally, somebody would be walking somewhere and they'd see this weird looking balloon. It would disappear over the hill, and then there'd be this boom. And go, what was that? Um, uh, they made it as far as Michigan. Uh, it caused, as far as we know, two brush fires. Uh, there were also six people killed but they were killed because a bomb failed to explode, and these guys went to look, oh, what is this? Um, And it went off. Uh, The difference between then and now is that the War Department told the press, don't report on this, don't say a word, because it will start a panic. And nothing was, was ever written about this. This was such a crazy story that I spent lots of time verifying it and there was a military historian who recorded all of this and I I checked him out I checked this whole thing out and it seems to be absolutely true even though pretty hard to believe um but it's you know on the list of uses of paper <laughs> once the time is right for an idea uh usually Numerous people will work on that idea. Like when Alexander Graham Bell was working on a telephone, a bunch of people working on a telephone, and probably his wasn't the first. There was an Italian guy in Havana who probably had the first phone. Um, lots of people were making electric lights when Thomas Edison made an electric light. His lasted longer. Um, uh, a 19th century Hungarian mathematician named uh, Farkas Bouillieu wrote about new ideas. When the time is right, these things appear in different places, like the way violets come to light in early spring. Um, and this is why uh, we actually rarely remember the true inventors of things. Uh, Kyle is an example of this, uh, who wasn't actually the inventor, but somehow the guy that, that we remember. I've Frequently run across this in my books, in my book, The Big Oyster, uh, which is about uh, oysters in New York City. And I read, ran across Robert Fulton, who we all know as the inventor of the steamboat. But he didn't invent the steamboat. There were lots of steamboats before Fulton. What Fulton did was he created the first uh, financially successful steamboat line, which went from the East River in Manhattan to Albany. Um, the guy we remember you know, is the guy who makes it work, and usually the guy who who makes money on it. I did a book on Clarence Birdseye, the inventor of frozen food, who also didn't invent frozen food. He just invented a commercial process (laughs) that made it uh, viable. Um, Gutenberg showed that printing could be beautiful and readable. Um, You know, Steve Jobs didn't invent anything. Uh, we, we, We just... Remember the people who made these things work, who took these ideas, applied them to what we needed, and made them happen. Uh, and if you look at computers, <coughs> I, when you think we, we're not that far into the computer age, we should not remember the inventors. We r- rarely remember the inventors. Um, uh, you know, this goes back a couple centuries of thought and ideas, and uh, most of it has been forgotten. We remember, you know, starting Microsoft and starting Apple. Uh, uh, Diderot, the uh, a, uh, late 18th century uh, Frenchman. Okay, I got a thing for Frenchmen. I don't know. Um, he, he led a movement called the Encyclopedists. Uh, he believed that um, all knowledge should be stored in encyclopedias. And He wrote, as centuries pass, the mass of work grows endlessly, and one can foresee a time when it will be almost impossible or difficult to educate oneself. Um, And that time came after World War II. Uh, World War II promoted a tremendous amount of knowledge and information, Uh, and after World War II, people started thinking, what are we going to do with all this stuff? A guy who worked for the U.S. government named Vanover Bush in 1945, wrote an article for uh, Atlantic Magazine, which all of the, uh, almost every innovator of the modern computer uh, will tell you that they were tremendously influenced by this article, which was titled As We May Think. And in this article, he said, holy new forms of encyclopedias will appear, ready-made with a mesh of associative trails running through them. And that was the the important idea. That's why computers were invented. Um, They weren't invented to replace paper. They weren't invented to replace books. Uh, They were were invented to um, store information that could be accessed and linked to other information. Um, Now, books are written on computers and printed in paper Uh, decrying computers and what they're doing to us and what they're doing to our brains. Uh, This is like Plato. You know, when the world shifted from oral language to written language, uh, people were equally horrified, and in exactly the same way. So Plato, who wrote, um, uh, used the written word to decry the use of the written word. (laughs) And if you listen to the things that he wrote, it all sounds very familiar. You know, he called uh, writing artificial memory. And uh, he said it's an elixir, not of memory, but of reminding. And he said that when someone gets information from a book, they don't have any true knowledge. Now, I think about that. When... I'm in a conversation with somebody, and they have their iPhone in their hand. It's irritating. You know, and they're Googling answers to things. I think exactly what Plato thought about the written word. I think, this guy has no real knowledge. Um, But we actually didn't lose our memory, and we didn't move into a world without knowledge. And uh, and we won't. Um, The debate about... uh, The merit of the written language uh, lasted for centuries. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages pointed out that Jesus Christ never used writing. Um, Actually, society survives all these changes, um, and our minds survive them too, no matter what you might read. Because they aren't really uh, changed. Technology isn't changes. Technology is about tools to facilitate changes that we've already decided on. Um, So remember, if you don't like it, remember your marks. You've got to attack the society, not the computer. Um, people, People keep saying, don't you hear this all the time? It's a changing world. The world is really changing. Why do they keep saying that? Has there ever been a time in history when the world wasn't changing? Um, What's changing is that there's a lot more marketing than there ever was. And, you know, if you want to sell something, you claim it's new technology. So you you look at a company like Apple. You know, they want you to throw away your iPhone and buy a new one every year. And the reason why you're supposed to get this new one is because it's a new technology. People are starting to figure out that it's not. And Apple is panicking because they're... they're not. They're still selling iPhones, but they're not selling them at the same rate because people aren't throwing out their old ones and buying new ones as quickly as as, as they used to. Um, but real new ideas do come along all the time, and if they don't uh, fit society, they they, um, they don't last, like the supersonic uh, jet. Um, but if they do, if they do work they usually aren't destroying something else they're just offering an alternative and if you look at ebooks you know i remember when publishing not that many years ago was in an absolute panic about ebooks and they used to say you know ebook sales went up 100% last year well you know if one year you sell one ebook and the next year you sell two it's gone up 100% <laughs> um, They increased to a certain point, and uh, the market for e-books hasn't increased in years now, and it's become clear to publishing that we now live in a world in which some people use e-books and some people use hard books. um, Some people don't like e-books. Kids don't like e-books. Some people like certain kinds of books in e-books and others in hard books. Some people like to travel with e-books and read hard books at home. Um, All kinds of different possibilities. It's, It's... Uh, Far from uh, destroying books, e-books has just kind of opened up uh, new possibilities. Uh, Books are not anywhere near being finished, and paper is not near being finished. And I truly believe, it's my hope anyway, that if you read this book, you will look at uh, technology and our times a little bit differently.